you are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Well, good morning. Good to see you. Hope you're doing well. If we haven't met, my name is Clint. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I'm thankful uh, to be up here with you this morning. If you have a Bible, will you turn with me to Psalm 42? Psalm 42, as you're turning there, let me set up a little bit where we're going this morning. For the past eight weeks, all summer, we have been preaching through various psalms, and we said back at the beginning of the summer um, that this word psalms is actually a Greek translation of a Hebrew word um, that means songs. Okay, so in a lot of real ways, uh, this book, these 150 psalms have served as the hymnal for the people of God for centuries and if you didn't know, there are various different types of psalms. So when we, my guess is when we think of psalms or the songs that are in this book, we tend to think of uh, psalms in the category of praise or thanksgiving. That's kind of where our mind tends to go. But that's not the only types. There are also psalms of ascent that would be sung by the people of God as they would go up to Jerusalem to worship as they ascended up the hill. There would be songs of remembrance that would be sung and intended to stir the people of God, their heart and their mind to remember who their God is and what he's done. The song we just sang would be one of those. That would be an example of a, a song of remembrance. And then another category of the Psalms is a Psalm of lament. Psalm of lament, which is a song expressing grief or sorrow. And if you haven't spent a lot of time in the book of Psalms, you, this might be a surprise to you, but lament is actually the largest category in the Psalms. I read one commentator this week who said that there are 42 different uh, psalms of lament, like individual psalms of lament, like individually crying out to God, grief or sorrow. There are on top of that 16 corporate psalms of lament, kind of the people of God crying out. And so some elementary math here to see who's paying attention. 42 plus 16 is 58, good job. And there's 150 psalms, right? So some scholars would say that there's more than that 58, some less, depending on how you determine what a psalm of lament is, but either way, somewhere around a third of all the psalms in the book are not songs expressing gladness and thanksgiving to God. They're songs that express sorrow and grief. And Psalm 42 is one of those songs, right? What better way to kick off the school year than a song of lament, right? <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, I think as I, because I got to pick prayerfully. That's a hard thing to do. I like when we preach through books of the Bible because I just, Bill just tells me what text to preach, right? But I had to, like, Lord, which psalm to preach? And Psalm 42, for whatever reason, kept bubbling up. So I do think um, that this sermon, this song is for someone specifically in here, but it's for all of us at some point in our lives. And so if you're in a season of life where things are good, praise God, right? Praise God. Take this sermon Put it right here, all right, because you're going to need it at some point down the road, but this is for somebody specifically. There are songs of praise, there are songs like this one, because uh, life in general, and the Christian life specifically, it's not always up and to the right. It's not the American dream of one promotion after the other, one nicer house after the other, one nicer car until you retire with everything you want, right? That doesn't describe the Christian life. It's called the American dream for a reason, because it's a dream, it's not reality. Reality is even if you are a part of the small minority whose life typically does just go up and to the right, even if that's you, there will be days, weeks, even seasons of your life where it just hurts. There's grief and sorrow and pain in the small areas of our lives and in the big one. Like one day everything's fine, the next day you lose your job or the AC quits working or somebody gets sick or, or whatever it is, right? Your car breaks down. 
And it's difficult for us as believers in Jesus to reconcile this tension because many of us have for years been buying into a version of Christianity that actually does resemble the American dream more than it does what we see in the Bible. Where if you do your part and you follow rules and you work hard, then God will give you what you want. Uh, And that's not biblical Christianity. Maybe you felt this tension last week in Psalm 23. Psalm 23 verse one says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that is true. Praise God that he is our shepherd, that Jesus in John chapter 10 says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But as Christians, we can be confident that in Christ, we will not lack what we need. But the good news of Psalm 23 is not that if we follow God, then we're gonna get what we want and he's gonna keep us from having to walk through the valley. The good news of Psalm 23 is that when we walk through the valley, through seasons of grief and suffering and sorrow, The shepherd is with us. That's the good news. That's the promise, that he is with us. A few chapters after uh, Jesus says he's the good shepherd, in chapter 16, he says this, I have said these things to you, that in me, in Christ, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The word tribulation here, if you have a different translation, it might say trouble, some say affliction, even anguish. The word uh, literally means pressing. It's the same Greek word used in, in to refer to pressing grapes to make wine or pressing olives to get the oil out of it, right? So Jesus isn't saying here, in the world you'll have trouble, but take heart because it won't be that bad. That's not what he says. It's in the world you will be pressed. There will be suffering, there will be sorrow, there will be grief and pain that feels like it's crushing you, but he says, take heart because I will be with you in it all. And on top of that, there's a day coming where the Apostle Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4 that he says even the most devastating and painful moments that we experience on this side, there's a day coming where even those things will feel to us like a fleeting moment. This is the truth of biblical Christianity. It's why a third of the Psalms are songs of lament. And again, if you are having a great day, you're probably not turning on a sad song driving down the road. So if, if your life is trending up and to the right, man, if, if it's, it, it's just good for whatever reason, praise God. That is a gift from the Father in heaven. Worship him, but I do think this is for somebody this morning because life in this world is not the way it should be. And God in his kindness and his mercy, he gives us words like these in Psalm 42 to help us make our way through the valleys of life. This is what Psalm 42 is. It helps give us an answer to the question of what do we do when God feels distant? What do we do when God feels distant? Not just what do we do when we walk through the valleys of life, but what do we do when, when we're walking through the valley of life? And there seems to be a disconnect between what we know to be true in our mind theologically and what we feel in our heart. That we know God is our shepherd and we know that he's with us always, but it feels like that couldn't be further from the truth. What do we do when life is difficult and God feels distant? That's what Psalm 42 is gonna answer for us this morning. So let's look at it together. Starting in verse one, says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So the psalm starts with an illustration and the, and the psalmist is basically using this illustration to show us, to let us into how he's feeling spiritually. And I want you just to think for a second. When we read those verses, what, what's the image that comes to mind? Like just imagine in your mind the image. If you do a Google search, an image search for Psalm 42, 
what you'll find is one picture after the other that looks kind of like this. I think I got one. It's, that's what they look like. Hundreds of them. Psalm 42, Google search, you're going to get something like this. And it's going to be this beautiful scene. There's a deer by a stream, probably in the mountains. Okay. It looks like a place that you might rent a cabin in for the weekend. That's the picture over and over again. And what do you notice about the animal? Is it weak, sick? No, it's strong. It's healthy, right? It's satisfied. It's just had a tough day in the woods, meandering around. And so there's some water. So he's going to have a drink, right? That's, that's the picture that you get when we read through Psalm 42. I even found this on the internet. Look at this. Um, this shirt here. <laughs> Psalm 42. This has nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted you to know you can get this online. <laughs> V-neck as well, if you're interested in that. No, but the, we, we think about it like the deer's strong. That, that's what we think, right? And so... The psalmist used this illustration to describe how he feels spiritually, but the picture you get in your mind is of someone who has this deep, satisfying relationship with God. And the problem with that is, and we're going to see this more in a minute in the psalm, is it's not consistent with what he prays. That image of the strong, satisfied animal isn't consistent with what we'll see with the tone of the psalm. Deer don't just casually stroll through the woods panting. He's not describing a satisfied animal in the mountains. He's talking about a desperate animal in the desert. They pant because they've been running, desperate to find the water they need to survive. That's how the song starts, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's not a place you want to visit for the weekend. You don't rent a cabin there. That's God, I am desperate and I'm desperate for you, like a deer frantically searching in the woods for water, my soul longs for you, but you're nowhere to be found. It's not just walking through the valley, it's walking through the valley when God feels distant. So what do we do? I'm gonna show you three things in Psalm 42. I'm gonna give them to you first, and then we'll walk through them. The first thing we do uh, when we walk through the valley and God feels distant is we go to God, we remember his goodness, and we put our hope in him. First thing we go to God. Look at the end of verse two. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Then he says this, when shall I come and appear before God? A literal translation of this phrase would be, God, when can I see your face? When can I see your face? And this seems really simple, but it's actually incredibly profound that when God felt distant to him, when he felt abandoned and forgotten, he goes to God. He goes right to God and he cries out to him. And again, that might seem simple, but this is almost opposite of what we do when we feel like God is distant from us. We go almost anywhere but to him. When life is difficult, when God feels distant, rather than go to him, we think the problem is that we need more of what we already have in order to be satisfied. So we pull out our phone and we buy something on Amazon that we don't need. Something, there's a disconnect between what we know to be true in our head but what we're experiencing in our life and we think, I, you know what, I need to buy something. I need to go to Target because I got Starbucks there too and I can get a coffee, right? And some of you are like, don't go there, okay? Don't start talking about Target like that. I won't use that illustration at the 11 because my wife will be here, just so you know. We think we need more of what we already have and so we just scroll through social media mindlessly or we eat more than we know we should or we drink more than we know we should or we lash out in anger at the people around us or whatever it is for you and we do it all just to find a, a small moment of escape. We run to all these things other than God to create a little moments of escape so we don't have to face and deal with what's actually going on inside of us. 
But when life is difficult, when God felt distant, the psalmist cries out to him. He goes to God, says, I'm desperate. I'm at the end of my rope, like a deer dying in the woods. He says to him, when can I see your face? You know what's interesting about this? You read through the whole psalm. He goes to God and he tells him he doesn't feel like he's listening, but he, he expects God to hear that prayer. He prays to God and says, it doesn't feel like you're listening. I'm like a deer looking in the woods frantically, but God, where are you? When can I see your face? But he expects God to hear that prayer. It's like a prayer about not being able to pray. It's important to realize he's not in this this season of spiritual drought because of his own sin or because he's neglected God. There are Psalms where we see people in a, a, a felt distance from God because of their own sin or because they've neglected him. That's just not Psalm 42, right? So if you, right now, if you go, yeah, that's me, I feel distant from God, but you're walking in unrepentant sin or you've neglected gathering with the church or you've neglected Bible reading or prayer, then that's the reason why you feel distant from God. Not because you can't find him, it's because you're not looking. But that's not what's happening here. He feels like God is absent and still he goes to him. He doesn't go to a different stream and he goes honestly. Look at what he prays, verse three. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. Tears as food day and night, which means he can't eat during the day and he can't sleep at night. On top of that, he says this, verse three, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So he says people around him are mocking him. And we don't know who they are, right? It could be his enemies, could be his neighbors, could be his coworkers, whatever. We don't know who they are. But when you read that, initially what comes to mind is you, you picture this like group of people, this like entourage of people following this guy around, just kind of mocking him and making his life miserable. Where's your God? Where's your God? And that might be what's happening. Happens lots of places like Twitter. Um, but what's more likely happening here is this is just his description of what life feels like to suffer with hope in God in a world that rejects him. That it just feels like no matter where you look, everybody's life seems to be going the way they want it to, and you're the only one. It feels like the world's mocking you, right? Where is your God? Right, and, and what, it feels incessant. Like everyone's living their best life and you're the only one struggling, and on top of that, the enemy whispers in there this, this to you. If God loves you, why would he let you go through this? You're the only one. Nobody else is dealing with this. If God loved you, he, he must have forgotten you. He must not love you anymore. That's what's happening. Where's your God now? And maybe the reason why that question, where's your God, stings so much is because it's not just coming from the outside. It's a question that lives in us as well. If you flip over to verse nine, you see he actually asked the same question. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Right, why me? You ever been there? where it seems like you're the only one suffering? You ever been to the place where you can't eat or you can't sleep and the only prayer you can muster is God, why? And by the way, Psalm 42, it's just 11 verses. And in those 11 verses, there are seven questions. And that ratio is significant. If you've ever walked through pain and suffering or if you walked with someone through pain and suffering, you know that, that pain in life has a way of creating questions for us. Why questions? When? questions. How long, oh Lord, questions. Seven questions in Psalm 42. And Psalm 42 shows us that God isn't asking us to bottle those questions up. He's inviting us to bring them to him. In fact, he even shows us the question to ask. He welcomes our questions, but he shows us the questions to ask in verse two there. When shall I come and appear before God? God, when will I see your face again? 
It's interesting that the psalmist who is walking through deep pain and suffering, he never asks for those circumstances to be changed. And I'm not saying it's bad to pray that God would heal or God would save or God would change your circumstances. It's not. In fact, we should pray that way. It's good. It's just circumstances can't satisfy, but God can. This is the pattern we see in Psalm 42. This guy goes to God with all his pain, with all his questions. God, I'm desperate. I can't eat, can't sleep. No matter what I do, I can't shake the accusations, the questions that come to mind that say my life should look different if you loved me. But he takes all of that brings it to God, goes to him honestly. And this is simple, again, but I think it would make a significant difference in our lives if we could do this. Because when you feel like God is gone or God is distant or he doesn't care about you, is that not when you are most prone to temptation? If God doesn't care about you, is that not when you're most prone to fall victim to sin? So here's a question you gotta answer this morning. Where do you go? Where do you go when life feels difficult when God is distant? Because here's the thing. Whatever the answer to that question is, whatever you run to in those deep, dark moments of your life, when life is tough and God feels like he doesn't care, wherever you go in that moment, that is your functional savior. Now, we don't like to think about it that way, but that's what's happening. So where do you go? The psalmist goes to God, he goes honestly. Let's look at the next one. Verse four, he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng, that word means crowd, and I would lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So here's the second thing he does when life is difficult and God felt distant is he remembers God's goodness. He remembers God's goodness. I I listened to a sermon this week by a guy named Paul Tripp, and he said something that I'm gonna share with you here in a second, but I don't think it's original to him. It may be, I don't know, he said this. One of the most important things to do in these moments of darkness is to remember the things you learn in the light. The point is when we remember that God was faithful to us then, then we're reminded that regardless of our circumstances that God is still faithful to us now. And the reality is when life is going well, what happens is we tend to look in the mirror and tell ourselves how good of a job we're doing. Right? And that's why when life's going good for us, it's, it's difficult for us to be empathetic for people who are struggling because we're looking in the mirror and we're going, you're doing a good job. And they're struggling because they're not living their life the way that you are. And if they would just do what you do, then their life would be going well too. Right? When life goes well, we look in the mirror. But when life isn't going well, we look to God and we say, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? And one of the best things for me when I get in that space making accusations against God, God, why? I don't deserve this, why me? One of the best things for me is when God in his grace and his kindness, he reminds me to ask a different question. Not God, why me, I don't deserve this, but God, where would I be if it weren't for you? Where would my life be if you hadn't given me what I could never deserve? Right, and I could go down the list And and we probably should all make a list of answering the question of how has God been faithful to you? When you look at your life, how can you trace God's kindness in your life and just list it out? For my my wife and I, I mentioned this years ago now, for the first five years of our marriage, we couldn't have any kids. And we just thought that was it. That was life. And now, uh, that's like the only sermon illustration I have, right? Why? Because God is good. 
because he hears our cries, because he answers prayers, he would still be good if we didn't have any kids today. But, but, but that's evidence of his kindness. And we can make this list. And, and if you're looking at the circumstances of your life and you go, man, I can't see it. I, here, I, I, you at least have this. In Christ, God has pulled you out of the muck and the mire of your sin. And he doesn't just forgive you and then pat you on your back and say, don't let it happen again but he sets his covenant love on you. He gives you his I do in Christ for better or worse. He pours his love out on you, not because of how hard you try or because how much better you're gonna get, but because a resurrected Jesus reaches down into your dead life and gives you grace that you could never deserve and he meets you every single morning with mercy that you could never earn. Church, how has God been good to you? Where would you be if it weren't for God's goodness in your life. Psalm 42 says, I am desperate, and this is excruciating, but I remember when God was near. I remember God's goodness to me. You were good to me then, you're good to me now. And it's this remembering God's past goodness to him that fuels his faith in the present. Hebrews 13 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Church, God was good to you then, he's good now. Look at what he remembers in verse four. It's probably not what you would expect. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. Again, he goes honestly to God, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. He remembers gathering with worship, gathering with the people of God for worship. That, something like this. When he's in this period of exile and this season of separation where life is just painful, and God feels nowhere to be found, he, he thinks back on times like this, where he would be with the people of God, glad shouts of praise and thanksgiving. So even though the this, this psalm doesn't tell us kind of the circumstances of, of when this was written, most scholars believe that this was written when, during one of the periods of Israel's exile from Jerusalem. One of the times when they were removed from the city and for them in their context, not being in Jerusalem meant they couldn't be in the temple, which meant they were separated from the very presence of God. So it's no accident that corporate worship is mentioned here because in our lives of looking back and remembering and following after Jesus, there is an individual component to it, but there's absolutely a corporate component to it. That we don't follow Jesus individually around one another. We follow him together as the local church. When he says in verse two, my soul thirsts for the living God, he has something like what we're doing in mind. Like, I don't know what you thought if you're thinking my soul thirsts for God. He's thinking about, I wanna worship. I wanna be surrounded by the people of God, offering God the worship that only he deserves. I wanna be mutually encouraged. I wanna be with the people of God. And there's so many Christians and so many churches have a thin view of what we're doing here when we gather on Sunday morning. You don't just show up if you have time, if there's not something more important going on, to hear some truth and sing some songs or listen to some music, probably a better way to say it. We listen more than we sing. If you just wanna listen to music and hear some truth, YouTube has you covered. And there's a better sermon there, I promise. Maybe not better music, but I can definitely speak for my preaching. Please don't underestimate what we do when we come in this room, please. God's people gathered together to, to have the, the thirst in our soul quenched by the living God. And when we gather to remember who he is and what he's done, the Bible says God is with us. Now Jesus, after uh, the great commission, he says, and behold, I'm with you always. So there's a reality 
that the living God is with every single one of us all the time. But when the church gathers, something unique happens. The, the spirit of God shows up in a unique way. That's why the author of Hebrews says, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. Right? Not only are we offering God the worship that he and he alone deserves, we are reminding one another that even if life is difficult and even if God feels distant, he is good and he has not forgotten us. This happened to me last week. I don't know if you were here last week. We had kids up here um, after kids camp, a week of kids camp. <clears throat> and Gardner tried to explain to you, they're not, we're not watching them. They're leading us in worship. And I was like, yeah, I believe that. That's true, like theologically, you know. But there's this disconnect in my heart until at the 11 o'clock service, when my boys are standing up here. And they start to sing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will live forever. And it encouraged me in a way that I haven't been in a while. That being with the people of God, worshiping and offering God the worship that he alone deserves, it did something to connect the dots between what I know to be true in here and what I experienced in here. It's like, yes, God loves me. Not just enough to answer those prayers to give me these boys, but to put, you know, all those things begin to connect. When life is difficult, when God felt distant, he goes to God, he remembers his goodness. And then here's the next one. Look at verse five. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So this looking back helps him to look forward and to ask an even more profound question. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Uh, this word cast down here, it means to like double over. It's like you get punched in the gut. And so he's saying, it's like my soul is collapsed. Like no matter what I do, everywhere I turn, I just feel like the bottom is just falling out. And this is the chorus of the song. Verse five, it repeats the same exact thing in verse 11. We'll read it here in a bit. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Again, this is a sad song. That's the chorus. You don't just put that on on any other Sunday afternoon. But sometimes we need this song. Because we, if you're not there today, you'll be there at some point in your life where you identify with Psalm 42 more than you ever thought possible. Why are you cast down, O my soul? If you notice, there's something significant about this question <coughs> that sets it apart from the others. It, it's not directed to God. Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. And he's just preaching truth to himself just talking to himself here. He takes the evidence of God's goodness in the past and he uses it to apply to his current situation. Remember God's goodness and he says, what's wrong with you? I know the circumstances of your life aren't what you want, but look at who your God is. Look at what he's done for you. He begins to preach truth to himself. And again, he's not dismissing his grief or pretending that it isn't there. He's encouraging his own soul in the present with what he knows to be true about God in the past. And he, again, he's honest with God, honest with his suffering, and, and he's suffering, but not without hope. This is the third thing we see here in Psalm 42. Go to God, honestly, remember his goodness and put your hope in him. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. He says, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That word, I, again, is key to understanding what's happening here. He says, one day I'll praise again. Which means he's not. He's not praising right here. But he knows, one day I will praise again. It won't always be this way. Why? Because God, I remember you're good and because you are my salvation. The word salvation here is the Hebrew word Yeshua. 
It's the Hebrew name for Jesus. In a song written a thousand years before Jesus was even born, he, point, he looks at salvation. And so he's preaching to himself to put his hope not in his circumstances, but in the certainty of his God. And what happens is you expect a turn here. You expect it to be kind of linear. Like, okay, your soul's downcast. You're like a deer panting. And so you just run the playbook, right? Run the playbook. Um, be honest, go to God, remember his goodness, put your hope in him, and then move on about your life. Things are gonna get better, but we know suffering with hope, it's up and down. It's back and forth. You expect a turn, but you don't get one. Look at verse six. He says, again, my soul is downcast within me. Still soul collapsed, still punched in the gut. He then says, therefore I remember you. So he goes to God, honestly, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon and Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers, all your waves have gone over me. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I remember you. He goes to God, he remembers God uh, from this place of exile and separation. That's what land of Jordan and Hermon are. That's up in the north, Jerusalem was down in the south. And so he says, even though my circumstances aren't what I want them to be, I remember you. I remember your goodness, even from the land of exile. And then he basically says in verse seven, I don't know if you caught it. He basically says, God, I'm drowning. The roar of your breakers and your waterfalls and your waves have gone over me. I'm drowning. And notice it's not just waterfalls and waves. What are they? Your waterfalls, God. Your waves have come over me. Essentially, he says, I'm drowning, but God, you are the one in charge of the water. And so we don't like this. We don't like to think about God's sovereignty and and the relationship between God being all-powerful and all-knowing and sovereign when it comes to evil and suffering. We don't like to think about that. And and in fact, that's, that's probably a sermon for another day, but I will say this. As hard as it might be to reconcile in your head how can a good, loving all-powerful, all-knowing God allow some of the atrocities that happen in the world, as hard as that might be to reconcile in your mind, the answer is not to say that he's not in control. Right? As hard as that might be, because if God isn't in control, then there is no hope. If God isn't the one who's in charge of the water, of the waves that are coming over you, then why pray to him at all? Because he doesn't have the power to change it. This is why the psalmist is preaching truth to himself. He says, why are you cast down? Put your hope in God. Look at verse eight. He says, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I think this day and night is the psalmist calling us back to what he says in verse three when he says, my tears have been my food day and night. So his present experience is one where he can't eat during the day, he can't sleep at night, he's just crying. He says, but here, The Lord commands his steadfast love a day and at night his song is with me. After remembering God's goodness and preaching truth to himself, what he's saying is this, is beneath those tears, beneath the waves of chaos is the love of God that gets him through the day and sustains him at night. That's what he's saying. He's saying that his circumstances are not proof that God's love for him has changed. Church, the bedrock of our faith in God is God himself. And he allows suffering to roll into our experience, but his steadfast love is not, doesn't come in waves, it's bedrock. God's love for us is bedrock. This is why Spurgeon says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. 
Because oftentimes it is the pain and suffering that we experience in this life that God uses to wean us off the things of this world that we might cling all the more to Jesus. All the little things that you run to in order to find satisfaction when you feel that disconnect between the way your present experience and what you believe to be true, all those things, oftentimes God uses pain in our lives to release our grip from those things so that we can cling to Jesus. And then he says, a prayer to the God of my life. Notice it's not just a prayer to God. It's a prayer to the God of my life. The God who holds all things. The waves of pain and suffering and also the good things. A prayer to the God of my life. This is talking more about just a habit of prayer. It's a reminder, church, that you have access to the ultimate source of wisdom and power and grace in the world. That the God who rules over everything that you might celebrate and who rules over everything that you fear is your Father who welcomes you into his presence. And he hears your cries, no matter how faint they might be. Let's look at verse 9. As I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Again, suffering with hope is up and down, right? It's back and forth. And we expect things to just get better, but his circumstances are the same as they were back at the beginning. And so he, he goes again to God, honestly. It feels like everywhere I look, I'm the only one suffering. God, why me? Why does this keep happening to me? He's like, as a deadly wound in my bones, right? Verse nine and 10 is a, it's a prayer to God that if, if you heard someone praying at community group, you wouldn't know what to do with. It's the type of prayer that most of us would say, it's gonna be fine. And yet that's not what we see here in Psalm 42. You wanna go to God honestly. Not pretending. You go to God honestly. It's not, if you see him pray, he, he doesn't say, God, have you forgotten me? He says, God, why have you forgotten me? This is this present experience, the reality. And what nowhere in this psalm, or even in Psalm 43, which scholars say used to be one psalm, and for some reason they split it, but it's really this, you, if you read it, it's like verse three because it has the same chorus. Nowhere in Psalm 42 or Psalm 43 do you see God answer the question of, have you forgotten me? He doesn't answer it. But you know what he does with the question? Jesus takes the why of our suffering and he makes it his question. Because on the cross, what does Jesus say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you think Jesus knew what he was doing when he was on the cross? Yes. The gospels tell us that he knew. He tells his disciples over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm gonna die, because if I don't, you won't be able to be with me. He knew what he was doing. Hebrews 12 even says this, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. So Jesus knew what he was doing on the cross. So why do you ask that question? Because not only does Jesus die in our place, but he enters into even the grief and suffering that we feel that leads us to ask God, why? This is why Hebrews 4 says we have an empathetic, a sympathetic high priest. We have a, a mediator between us and God who knows everything about our experience. In every why God moment we experience in this life, we can be confident that Jesus is with us, he knows what we're doing, and he's for us. 
And so the world might say to us, as it did to Jesus, where is your God? We might hear the mocking of our enemies and we feel that question bubble up inside of us, where is your God? Here's our answer. He was crucified in my place, but he is risen. And the Bible in Revelation 21 says there's a day coming where one day we will too. That it won't always be this way. That sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. There's a day where Christ himself will return. Revelation 21 says he'll wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death will be no more. There'll be no more crying or pain anymore, he says, for the former things have passed away. And until then, when life is difficult, God feels distant, we go to him. Honestly. We remember his goodness. We put our hope in him. Let me pray for us. Then we'll respond. Father, I'm thankful that when we gather in this room, we don't have to pretend that we get to come honestly and we get to come without fear that you will reject us because your acceptance of us isn't based on who we are or what we do. It's based on who Christ is and what he's done. So I pray for the folks in this room, God, if someone is walking through a season of grief and sorrow, would you comfort them with the words of Psalm 42? God, if we're in a season where We can't identify with Psalm 42. Would you allow us to worship you, to to see how good of a gift that is from a good father? Help us, God. We need your help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're gonna respond this morning the way that Jesus teaches us to the night before he died on the cross for our sins. So yeah, if you're serving communion, you can head on back there. Just stay in the back and I'll call you down here in a a minute. Um, The night before Jesus dies on the cross, he's in a room with his closest friends, his followers, and he takes bread and he breaks it. Uh, and he takes the cup and he pours it. He says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Uh, this is the, what he's doing is he's taking the, the head knowledge of what we, who we know Jesus is and what he's accomplished for you, and he gets it out of our heads and he puts it in our hands. So we get to experience it, to help us connect the dots between what we know to be true and what we experience in our life, that our God has not forgotten us, that he is with us. And so in just a moment, these uh, folks are going to come. They're going to hand out the elements. I'm going to ask that you would just take them and hang on to them. I'll come back up and we'll take it together. But in, in that time, what I want you to do, just to give you a few moments, the band's going to play. I want you just to go to God. Go to God honestly. And maybe you just need to just stay, just go to him with whatever you have because you haven't been honest with him in a long time. Maybe you need to think about that list, recount in your mind, how has God been good to you? How can you see and trace his kindness in your life. Uh, I just want to give you some space to be honest with God and, and remember his goodness to put your hope back in him and then I'll come back up and we'll take communion together. I will say this, if you're if in this room today and you say you're not a believer in Jesus, you're a guest with us, we're grateful uh, that you're here. We're just going to ask that the elements would pass for you because not because we're trying to keep you from anything. In fact, it's the opposite. We want to invite you into this family. This is a meal for the family of God that we take together. So if you would take a few moments. Spend some time with God as the elements come around, then I'll come back up and we'll take it together.